Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And if you have any questions or comments, you can feel free to email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean. So, I know that you got questions out there, so let me have them. I'll, t- I'll take a crack at them. All right, well, let's... Oh, let's see. Big things in the news. Okay. Um, obviously, the Donald Trump mugshot was a big deal, and, and uh, it's turned into a, a money-raising boom <laughs> for uh, <laughs> for Donald Trump. I mean, you know, anybody who's got eyes can see the, the double standard of justice, the persecution. Going back to 2015 of a guy who's a political outsider. And what does that really tell you about who controls things? I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but, you know, going back to 2015, you can talk about the spies that were in his campaign, the Russia hoax, uh, the Steele dossier hoax, the first impeachment hoax. And then you look at the the very sketchy things that happened during the 2020 election. I mean, no wonder the guy, no wonder the guy thinks that uh, everything's been weaponized against him. He's right. He's absolutely right. Um, If they can do that to Donald Trump, imagine what they can do to ordinary people like us. They will crush us like, like bugs on cement. I mean, we're nothing more than amoebas to them. And they're going to come after us. Um, I mean, they didn't hire, try to hire. I, I, I'm, I get a mixed deal if they actually hired that, those 85,000 IRS agents or if they, they tried to and they got turned down. But those IRS agents aren't to go after, you know, billionaires that are hiding their money. They're to come after you and I, the middle class, who are being robbed. We're being robbed by energy prices that are driven by totally unsound energy policies. Inexpensive energy is the cornerstone of civilization. If you have inexpensive energy, your economy can grow, you can make things, you can improve life for everyone. When you have expensive, hard-to-use energy, um, it's a whole different deal. A whole different deal. Your economy can only grow at a certain, if it grows at all, it can only grow at a very small rate because energy then becomes even more expensive as the demand increases. So, um, you know, it's it's crazy how we are being just absolutely treated like chattel. You know, I mean, it, it's like being uh, it's like being chickens. And Uncle Sam is, uh, you know, we're the roosters and the hens, and Uncle Sam is the uh, is Colonel Sanders and, you know, KFC. That's what it feels like. I mean, it just they'll take from us until there's just literally nothing left to take. And I mean, it's going to get that way. Uh, our economy is very, very frail. And who's who's controlling this? Um, like I said, I, I mean, I can't believe that the goofball. You know, that fat Albert-looking prosecutor in New York or that that absolute 
you know, creature in Fulton County, Georgia. They're not just these independent actors who say, we can go after Donald Trump. No, they're not that. Someone is behind them. Someone is providing them top cover to do this. Someone is encouraging. Someone is paying. Someone is coordinating. And I would like to know who that is, who or what that is. Um, it seems pretty frightening to me. I mean, you know, we're in the we're in the position where the president, the attorney general, the secretary of defense, and the secretary of homeland security all need to be impeached. We've never really had that before. I mean, they need to be impeached. They're not doing their jobs. I mean, that that sleepy looking toad who's the secretary of defense. Um, you know, it, it just it, you can go on and on and on about how we are just losing our our military capability. Every day it seems to be shrinking to the point where I was talking last podcast. Hey, you know, we don't have that many kids that can even serve anymore, and we're certainly not doing anything to encourage them. Um, it's 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 horrible. I don't know who's controlling things, but they need to stop. And they are so panicked that Donald Trump might get back into the presidency and reverse some of this. I don't know that he or anybody else could reverse all of it, but he might reverse some of it. And they're so panicked, they're actually even exposing themselves. They don't even bother to hide it now. They're not even bothering to hide it, which is insanity. A felony gun charge for Hunter Biden was going to be written off in a diversion program. And thank God that now if I was that judge, I would be I'd be wearing Kevlar and living in a freaking bunker. But um you know, that's insanity. If that happened to you or I, we we'd be looking at hard jail time. It's it's crazy. And those people are crazy and uh, and we need sanity in Washington DC, that's for sure. We need some sanity in this whole legal process. Now, a couple of years ago, the George Floyd riots, Kenosha, Wisconsin, Rittenhouse has to defend himself. He basically scratches two and gets a and and uh, injures a third one. Well, now he's being sued by the estate of one of the people that he kept, people who are trying to kill him. Make no mistake, this was not a gratuity, a gratuitous, um, you know, he wasn't just out there shooting people like, you know, like squirrels or something in the forest. I mean, they came after him. They tried to kill him and he defended himself and he got and, and used a successful self-defense defense in court. And now they're, quote, suing because it's there's some stupid, ignorant thing. That civil court doesn't have the same standard of, of um, proof that, uh, you know, regular courts have. So, you know, it's, it's, that's all nonsense. That's all double jeopardy and it's nonsense. And that has to be fixed. I don't care what they do to civil court. But once you're, once, you know, once the court that has the highest burden of proof acquits you, that should be the end. There just shouldn't be this fortune hunting um, done by others, um, 
I bet he wishes he still had his AR-15 because he could sell it and raise defense money or something. But anyway, that's just uh, that's just some of the stuff that's going on. And, and there's more and more and more of it, you know, more and more. Um, <clears throat> getting back to something that came up in conversation, and, and I've actually heard it on a couple of podcasts, and that is prepping for a disaster. And I, I kind of look at it, and, and, you know, you look at the Maui fire. Hey, there, there's no amount of prepping that would have helped. You know, fire is one of those things you just can't, uh, can't do. And uh, in fact, in fact, uh, one of my, I used to live in a place called Paradise, California, which in, was it 2018, 2018, 2017, 2018. Um, of course, I hadn't lived there for years and years and years, but they got wiped out by a fire, killed almost a hundred people. Um, you know, and it, it moved so fast that it engulfed everything. You know, even people who were trying to drive away, if you didn't drive away fast enough, the fire caught up with your car and, you know, that was it. So, you know, prepping for disaster is one of those things of, well, you got to kind of look at what disaster it is. Uh, same thing with floods, you know, and ammunition won't really help you in a flood uh, or a hurricane, you know, like, there's some bearing down on Florida and the East Coast right now. Um, <clears throat> but they will help you with the aftermath and what I call the preventable disasters, which are the absence of authority and rule of law that could last anything like in riots could last for hours or it could last for days in, in certain uh, uh, situations where there's you know authority just isn't there and you have to look at the look at the urban riots and you see that you saw it first with the um god what were those rodney king riots way back like 30 years ago hey the police just pulled back and ceded parts of the city to the mob and eventually went in and, and reclaimed and you know they actually had to have the national guard and even the uh, regular army had to go in and help um you know, that is a that is a very bad thing. Same thing happened in Portland. You know, face it, the police weren't out on the street writing parking tickets. They were trying to defend that federal courthouse, the Mark Hatfield federal courthouse, from just being overrun. You know, it's like the movie Zulu, you know. I mean, they're, they're just going to get overrun. And they were trying to prevent that. There were a couple, I, at least one, maybe even more, police stations that they just abandoned i guess they yanked all the weapons and stuff out of it and you know the protesters go in there and trash the place and and all that um if you are in a place that they retreat from you are at the mercy the absolute mercy of these crowds and uh it's a very very frightening situation because it could last for two hours three hours could last for two or three days you don't know uh, you just don't know so that's what you know I think when people talk about firearms and prepping you really have to look hard at that at that situation you know where and when is law enforcement and the rule of law how is it going to play out that those are not able to protect me you know to to you know, just arrest bad people and, and all that. What are the conditions that would cause law enforcement to be overwhelmed? You know, is it 
10,000 people protesting, burning, and, you know, and these crowds, the larger they get, usually because of the way crowd mentality works, the more bold and unruly they become. And, uh, you know, large parts of a city could, could get easily taken over for some period of time by this anarchy. Imagine, and we haven't seen it yet, but imagine that in concert with a major jailbreak from one of these larger, you know, facilities, the county lockup, and uh, how many bad actors that could turn out on the street. Could be a lot. Could be a lot. So it's a very, very um, scary situation. Preventable disasters. Um, you know, and again, you you don't need 10,000 rounds of of this and all kinds of stuff. You probably need a good handgun and a good rifle and maybe a good shotgun. You know, there's some really good guns out there for people who cannot use or buy because of their jurisdiction. Something obvious like an AR-15, which would be the best tool. But there are some people who can't manage it. Um, you know, whether they're elderly or or a, you know, I hate to say female because that's that sounds misogynistic. But, you know, when there's people who cannot or not shooters and handling a defensive rifle might be a little daunting, that's when you can start looking at like a 1022 with a 25 round magazine, something, anything is better than a clenched fist. Um, so those, those are the types of options that people should look at, prepping for preventable disasters, disasters that are caused by human agents, because that's the stuff. And I'm not talking about Red Dawn, you know, the Cuban paratroopers landing in your schoolyard. You know, it's not that. Um, and having to take to the hills for years. It's that very critical time when law enforcement is unable to enforce the rule of law. And if you're on the ground, doesn't matter if you're in downtown Baghdad or downtown somewhere in the USA. When you're without the protection of the law, you are very exposed and potentially um, in very dire circumstances. So I'll go with them from there to kind of an interesting thing. Um, I did not know this. I, I live near a military installation that has what they call internationals. We used to call them foreign students. Now they call them international students. And these are students from allied countries who want to go to the schools that we have here. Uh, we do that for a variety of reasons so that we have good interoperability with them. Uh, so we can, uh, you know, they understand how we operate. We can understand something about them. It builds relationships. It does all kinds of good things. Well, apparently a couple of years ago, and I'd kind of forgotten about this, there was a Saudi pilot who was taking, um, taking some sort of flight course, and he illegally got a hold of a weapon, and you know he killed three sailors with it, three of our our people with it. Well, after that, they have very quietly come out with these rules, and these rules are actually fascinating. 
um, just as a, a matter of discussion. But anyway, these students that are invited to the United States to participate in our training are not allowed to possess, purchase, borrow, or use a privately owned weapon. So if one of them is a friend of yours and you say, hey, let's go shooting. Well, I don't, I'm not allowed to have a weapon. Oh, that's okay. You can use one of mine. Can't do it. They cannot touch a privately owned weapon. And I thought that was one of the weirdest things because, number one, like any of these rules, is it going to prevent anything? If someone has got their mind set up, they're going to do it. They're going to say, well, I would go shoot three or four people, but man, I'm not allowed to touch a weapon, so I'm not going to do it. I mean, arguably, it might make it a little more difficult, but not so difficult that they couldn't do it. Number two, it tells the people we're trying to build relationships with and get some interoperability with and all the rest of it that we don't trust them. And uh, that's probably the worst part of it. And number two, and number three, I should say, is, you know, we know who these perpetrators are and where they are from. Um, you know, it's not the guy from Denmark. It's not the guy from Estonia. It's not the gal from France. It's not the guy from the UK or Canada. You know, it's not the gal from um, Australia. It is people from the Middle East, and we know this, we know this, and we refuse to recognize where the problem is or that there's a problem because nobody wants to be the one who says, hey, you know what, this is the problem, this is where we should focus. So we make a rule that punishes everybody because um, we have people who are doing very bad things and we refuse to confront the ones that are actually high risk. Uh, well, here's a question that came in. And this normally would not be a, a old school guns podcast type question, except... I, I can I can frame this in context of, of weapons, so I'll, I'll do this. Um, should the atomic bombs have been dropped on Japan in 1945? And what I will say is, you know, back in 1945, there was no question that we needed to do it, needed to end the war as quickly as possible. Uh, the background context was we had firebombed 60 Japanese cities and they were showing no signs of surrender. In fact, the Japanese, their ruling council, uh, their war cabinet was saying, we're not even going to talk about peace, not even going to think about it, until we've blunted the invasion that they're obviously going to mount. And they knew that we were going to invade southern Japan because they knew we would do it within the range of our fighters. So they took out their little measuring devices and measured from Okinawa to what they thought the the range limits of our fighters were and they saw it was southern Japan they, they knew where it was they also looked and said well they're also going to want to try to capture airfields as soon as possible so that's where they were going to concentrate their forces and it was going to be a very drawn out bloody invasion and they thought if we make it cost enough 
and this is faulty military thinking, but it's what they were doing. If we make it cost enough, they'll stop. And they'll give us terms. Because the Japanese at that point saw everything in terms of strength and weakness. And they knew that at the Potsdam Declaration, when we kind of set out, well, these are the, this is how we want Japan to surrender. It wasn't really conditions because it was mostly an unconditional surrender. But they saw that as weakness. They, they thought America wants out of the war. And they were actually somewhat correct at that point. They just didn't realize we had atomic weapons on the way. Um, you know, the, the other side of the coin is, <clears throat> so the Japanese, the Japanese were not interested in peace. There was a peace initiative with the Soviet Union, uh, but that was kind of a rogue thing. That wasn't a, that everybody in the government was not behind that, especially the militarists were not behind that. So that was going to, that all came to naught. That just came to no fruition. And in fact, Soviet Union declared war on Japan um, a little while after that. The thing to keep in mind is the Japanese and the Germans both had atomic bomb programs themselves. Now, they didn't have the industrial capacity to make it happen because, you know, we kind of figured out you could use plutonium. Because if you use uranium, uh, it takes a long time, years, to get enough material to make a bomb. So, you know, that was the other thing. If we had taken an atomic bomb and blown it up off the coast and said, hey, look, we got this, you guys better surrender. The Japanese, based on their own atomic bomb program experience, would have said, hey, they can't have more than one of these. It's They're just too hard to make. So they're just trying to bluff us into surrender. So it wouldn't have done any good. Now, same thing, even if we use it on them, they were, the, the militarists were still going to say, well, okay, they made one bomb, so what? They used it on us. Didn't really do any more damage than the firebombing did. And they, they, don't, they can't make more of these. It's going to take them a year or two at least to make more of these. They're still going to have to invade. Now, they also realized that the you know, casualties of Hiroshima being as bad as they were were only half of what the Japanese had lost in the firebombing of Tokyo. And, you know, that's a whole nother story, but that was that was a pretty horrific, horrific deal. And it killed twice as many people as the... More people were killed in that firebombing, and it was three over three nights, than were killed in Nagasaki and Hiroshima combined. So that tells you how bad that was. So when we, we had to drop not only the first bomb to show, hey, we've got them and we can use them, we will use them on you, we had to drop the second one to show them that, hey, we have more than one. This isn't just some bluff we're running. This isn't just a flash in the pan. Oh, that's probably not a good thing to say. But anyway, um, this is not just a, a lucky thing that we made one of these and we used it on you. We have more. And by dropping a second one three days later, that's when the realization kicked in of, oh my God, the Americans have hundreds, if not thousands of bombers. If they can produce these things even at 10 a month, 20 a month, the actual number was probably three a month. But if we had them that we could drop them three days apart, Japan would cease to exist. 
there would no longer be Japanese. Um, every population center would effectively be destroyed and, and just there it would just depopulate the the islands, of course, and of course they would be radiation nightmare. But anyway, uh, that's what brought the Japanese to the to the table. And, and basically they you know, we always say it was an unconditional surrender, but we did grant them one condition, and that was that the emperor, who we thought pretty much was a figurehead, and we were pretty much right, um, and we knew that it would be easier to control the population post-surrender because the, uh, um, you know, we would have had control of the emperor, and he was going to do what we said, and that was a that that would actually work for us. It wasn't a big concession. It actually was a happy coincidence for us uh, to keep the emperor. Um, were his hands clean? Yeah, I, I don't know. I, you know, I, I haven't studied Hirohito enough to. The, the post-war conventional wisdom was he was kind of this. I think he was a botanist or something or biologist. He kind of had his um, his hands buried in his. Um, you know, in his work, and he was kind of enough of a man of science that he figured out atomic bombs weren't really a good thing, but he was not a, a statesman running the government type of deal. He was, you know, he was sort of a, uh, probably a little bit smarter version of King Charles, which isn't saying much, but that's probably what he was. So, you know, going back and, and you know, got to realize Germans and Japanese would have used them on us in a heartbeat. If you don't know what a fugo is, a fugo is a Japanese balloon bomb that was designed, it was an incendiary bomb designed to start forest fires in the Pacific Northwest. And they launched like 10,000 of these things. Um, now, you know, they were kind of made out of silk and paper and all kinds of stuff. Of the 10,000 they launched, maybe a thousand of them reached North America. And they were everywhere from northern Mexico to... Um, up through Canada and all the rest because the winds just, you know, took it. So they would have used it on us. And I face it, the Japanese were crafty. They actually bombed, um, you know, they submarine. They had submarines that had a little float plane and they would go drop, they dropped some bombs in Oregon, you know, conventional bombs, obviously. And um, they had these balloon bombs. The Germans had even more frightening technology. They had missile technology and you know, kind of the U-boat technology. Um, you know, it wasn't like it was the atomic weapons were a complete monopoly. We were lucky that our science and our industrial capability were able to push us way ahead and get us over the finish line before those guys were even close. And uh, things that basically stopped them the challenges that stopped them from actually producing the bomb were things that, you know, we were able to overcome in the Manhattan Project. So I would say that there was no choice. Every all the discussion you hear is, is basically, um, um, basically just after the fact. Monday morning quarterbacking, uh, revisionist history. I will tell you that the Japanese were preparing weapons-wise. I mean, they were making last-ditch rifles that. You know they're hor they're horrible compared to you know the earlier examples of their weapons, but they would function at least through a magazine or two. You know a couple of stripper clips of ammo 
because the rifles probably wouldn't have lasted very long, but they, they were arming, you know, they were giving schoolgirls pikes and lances. I mean, it was, it was going to become a total war for the, ex they, they saw, they saw the invasion as total complete war for the existence of their culture. So it was not going to be like going through, you know, Germany or Italy in some places where the people come out and greet you. There was going to be none of that. Absolutely none of that. It was going to be fighting the entire way with no friendly populace whatsoever. So from, from that standpoint, we knew we had degraded their offensive capability. We destroyed their Navy. We shot down a lot of their Air Force. But their air power still had the kamikaze, which was a very, very big threat to our, to our naval ships. And, uh, you know, they still had this, again, 100% mobilization of the civilians that would have been a very formidable force in the defense. So that's that. All right, let's get to the part of the podcast that is my favorite, which is questions and answers. And here's a question. I'm sure we've had this before, but I'll, I'll go over it again. Should, is it possible and is it a good idea to carry a cap and ball revolver for self-defense? Well, I, you know, again, it's they're very intriguing guns. And people ask this question because they're very intriguing guns. And, you know, at least for five or six shots, they're pretty useful you know they're they're pretty good um the problem with that is is that there's almost no ability to reload them other than carrying another pistol uh there are some reliability issues that you do have to work out make you know put put the improved nipples in they used to be treso nipples now i think they call them slick six nipples uh you put those in um you know you could always have a cap jam the action it, it's not the type of thing you can really bet your life on but what you can do with them is they can make trail guns i mean you could carry it on a trail where you know I, i'm not talking about you know grizzly bear country or anything but there are times when you want to have a, a handgun with you, and if you feel comfortable using a cap and ball gun, there's nothing nothing wrong with that. Um, you could use them. I've carried mine around on my property, um, you know, a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit. You could use it for that. You know, if there's something you want to shoot, you chances are you're only going to get a shot or two anyway. So a cap and ball isn't that um, isn't that restricting. So you know, you can use it for stuff like that. It could be used as a kind of a lower level utility gun um, you could definitely do that um, I'm trying to think yeah uh, a lot of times you carry a 22 for that that sort of duty and if you wanted to carry something bigger without investing a lot more money you know you could do that cost analysis yourself but I, I think the the usually the limitation with something like that is um, you have to practice with a cap and ball gun and pretty much know where it shoots and know all of its ins and outs. So a person who would do that would normally be a person who's a 
probably a fairly experienced shooter. I don't think it'd be a good idea for a new shooter. So anyway, that is um, that is what I would think about carrying a cap and ball revolver, never as a primary defensive gun, but as something as a utility gun around property or a trail gun. It, it, you could use it for that. That that wouldn't be a big deal. Uh, AR rifle recommendations. Do you have any? Well, first of all, I don't, I'm not in the business of recommending guns. Um, I can tell you what I've had good luck with, um, but I'm not a real gear guy. But what I will tell you is, is some general things that should be common sense, but aren't. Uh, first of all, stay away from anything with a polymer frame. If the lower receiver is polymer, stay away from it. Um, and I realize that there's the, I don't even know what the status of those, what would stoner do rifles is, what, whatever all that is. But go with a standard, and they're so inexpensive, go with a standard aluminum lower receiver. Um, I would stick with 5.56 because anything else is just expensive, expensive, expensive. Uh, 300 blackout is probably, if you, if you absolutely can't stand 5.56, then you can go with 300 blackout. Uh, I won't have a 300 blackout gun because they will chamber in a 5.56 chambered rifle and I don't want to have that ammunition mix up um, ever happen because that will ruin your whole day. So to me 300 blackout offers me nothing. I like 5.56. The gun was designed for 5.56. It works very well in 5.56. 5.56 is an excellent cartridge and so go with it you know just just do that um other than that go with a style you like um i i'm torn on optics that's something that you'll have to see where you want to use it and how you want to use it as to what to sort of optic if any um would be best the my my trepidation with optics is that they if they rely on especially they rely on batteries um you know it's always it, they're always going to be inconvenient and i realize that there are some that have got incredible 10-year life batteries and all this uh the, the other ones i you know it's it's so easy for a scope to lose its alignment a little bit i i just iron sights are are beautiful in a lot of ways um, they simplify things. That's why retro ARs were, and to a degree still, are very popular because they're simple. And things that are simple usually work very, very well. Uh, levels of complexity, gee, a screw gets loose and, you know, the scope is a little jiggly and you don't recognize it, and, and you know, or the scope got somehow bumped and now it's shooting in a different place. I mean, I like iron sights. I, I'm an iron sight guy. I like them. But I, I do have guns that, that, that use the others. But um, I think iron sights are definitely um, something that I would not shy away from. Uh, other things I would shy away from is don't get caught up into you have to have every latest goofball accessory that comes out there's there's literally you know they used to have memes of you know swiss army knives on the front of <laughs> ars I, I would be very careful with things such as 
you know rails everywhere because those will eat your hands if you're not uh, um, you're not careful so um, you know I guess sometimes with the ARs less is more and unless you have a demonstrable need for something uh, don't get caught up into man it would be so cool to have this um, and you can definitely do that in the uh, in the AR market simple is better basic is is better all of that is really good especially if you're kind of new to it um, then when you decide you need something or want something else then it's a a, a much easier decision but um, too many guys want to sell you their boutique ARs with all the gadgets and all these bells and whistles and you know kind of they wind up looking like gamer guns and, and it destroys in my in my opinion one of the beauties of the AR system which is lightweight and compactability and kind of the sleekness of the design um, the more junk you put on there the kind of the more clunky it becomes and uh, so that's those are my my AR recommendations simpler is better grow into any modification that you or accessory that you need uh, what do you think of Webley revolvers um, I think I've talked about these a little bit also uh, Webley's are very cool revolvers um, as a piece of history they're fun they're a lot of fun to shoot um, as a relic of you know especially the first world war they're just iconic I mean, I think there's that scene in, uh, it's not the Light Horseman, it's in Gallipoli, where they're getting ready to charge, and somebody raises that Webley revolver, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's so iconic. You know, Lawrence of Arabia had one. They even found some of his empty cartridges uh, on the Hijaz Railway, where, you know, they ambushed a, a train, and the train is actually still out there. So I guess if you, uh, I guess it's in Jordan, and I guess if you uh, have the adventurous spirit and, you know, can get out there, you could actually go out and see the train wreck that, you know, Lawrence of Arabia, the train that Lawrence of Arabia wrecked and ambushed. But they did do a, uh, um, an analysis out there and they found 455 Webley empty cases and he was the only one known to have had a revolver there. So um, the uh, Arab tribesmen that he was with we're all carrying rifles they they weren't necessarily fans of handguns so he had the only handgun out there so the ones they found actually belonged to him i thought that was very cool but uh yeah they're they're a lot of fun the the 38 webleys are you know they're a little smaller a bit more manageable interesting history with all that kind of the you know the, those were the guns kind of at the end of the british two world wars the end of the empire the you know the upheavals in Africa you know very interesting they served in a very interesting time and uh, for years you could they, they cost nothing I mean for years they cost nothing um, but those days are long gone even the 38 ones which you know were looked up really looked down upon are, are now collectors items so that is the deal on Webley revolvers Okay, why were so many obsolete rifles and handguns used in World War One? Well, the answer to that is is kind of obvious. 
the requirement for weapons far exceeded what anyone would have predicted. So consequently, anything that could load and fire uh, was pretty good uh, and <coughs> would get used. Even to the point where the British bought, is the Brit I know the Canadians bought 3030 Winchesters and I think 3030 Winchester 94s. The Canadians bought some. I believe the British bought some. The British bought 7mm Mauser uh, Remington rolling blocks and put them on. Because there's a whole use, there's a whole second line use for weapons in wartime that are not frontline, you know, Battle of the Somme type of deal. Um, you know, ships need for boarding parties and for other things sometimes exploding mines that they see floating around out there uh, they need rifles you know they need they need rifles but they don't necessarily need great rifles they need just usable rifles and they can even afford these calibers you know to be oddball caliber rifles because you know hey seven millimeter mauser well you're not going to shoot them all that much so if you've got a thousand rounds on your ship and you've got ten of these rifles you probably have enough to last the entire war. So that's the oddball stuff that was out there. Uh, the other stuff was, you know, the firearms technology from about 1870 to 1910 moved very quickly. So countries were literally, they were buying, they were buying, you know, maybe a million or two million of the latest black powder cartridge rifle like a Mauser 1871-84. They would buy a whole bunch of those. Just a few years later, they become obsolete for frontline service. But hey, you got two million of these things. What do you do with them? Well, you, you know, you distribute a few out into the colonies and the rest you kind of lock up and, you know, save for a rainy day. And the rainy day came in 1914 and a lot of this stuff was kicked out. You know, you see it's generally looked upon as not a very good rifle, although I, I tend to disagree. But the German Gewehr 88 um, was long obsolete. I mean, it was made obsolete in 1898. So you would think that by 1915, there wouldn't be any around. Yet, there's picture after picture after picture of World War I German soldiers with Gewehr 88s. And that's because they produced several million of them. And, um, hey, they weren't going to throw them away. They were too valuable to throw away. They weren't front line, but they were too valuable to throw away. So artillery troops could use them. Um, if you had military police, they could use them. Um, certainly the frontier gendarmerie back home could use them. So they had, they had all these. And, you know, the, the newer weapons were closer to the front line and the older even the black powder cartridge in the united states it's very there were plant guards that were actually issued trapdoor springfields now they didn't go down to the local sporting goods store and say hey on the used gun rack here's an old trapdoor let's buy it and issue it to somebody these were still in u.s government stores um crag rifles which had been obsolete since like 1905 1906 some of them hung out till 1908 1909 but some of the first troops that went over to Europe uh, had Krag rifles. Now they were quickly replaced, but they still had them. You know, they were still still there, and they were of course used. 
a lot of these arms were used as training weapons because hey you train somebody you know a crag is not a perfect substitute for a 1903 Springfield or a 1917 Enfield but it's close enough that it has some training value you can use it to, to at least get people to train them on basic marksmanship stuff so those types of things were very they were countries found them very valuable same thing with handguns um, even more so um, you know the fact of the matter is you put your good stuff up front and in the US Army they actually had you know some of the old 38 Colt 1901s and a few of the, those things there were there were guys carrying those in the rear echelons you know They're, you know, if you're at a port in France with no real threat of the Germans being there, but you should be armed because, you know, it's better be armed than not. Um, you know, a 38 Colt um, revolver is not a bad, bad thing to have. It's not great. It's not as good as a 1911 or a 1917 Colt or Smith & Wesson, but it's something and it's there. So they, they filled, filled in those roles. Um, sorry about my voice it's a it's another one of those pollen days so I'm kind of messed up but um, you know it's it's very interesting you know even things like the 303 Martini Henry and I guess it's Martini Enfield because the different rifling but a lot of these older weapons got used one very interesting thing is during World War II actually this is World War II there were some Solomon Island natives who, you know, kind of lost everything and the U.S. government came, went in and these, they needed to be able to hunt. You know, I, I don't know what they hunt there, but they hunt something. And so they were given 1861 Springfield rifles because the weapons that they had previous were, you know, British and European muzzle-loading rifle muskets. And that's what they hunted with. So the the 1861 Springfield was actually a you know good choice for them. They knew how to use it. It wasn't a big deal. It it worked. It was not like giving them something incredibly more advanced. And of course, those 1861 Springfields had no military value in World War II, so we could give them away and nobody cared. But it shows you that those things were in stock somewhere. And it was outside of the museum system, I'm sure, because there weren't that many museums back then. Um, there was a stock of 1861 Springfields that we could just give away and not ever miss. Um, so, you know, a lot of a lot of weapons. As a matter of fact, when I first joined the Army Reserve way back when, this is in the late 70s, uh, the Army did a comprehensive inventory of all the weapons it had, just everything and they found some of the weirdest you know 1900 Colt automatic pistols you know they'd find five or six of those that were squirreled away somewhere on a they were on a property book and they got transferred from you know one one organization to another or one commander you know would assume command and take take charge of them and turn them over to his successor so there was all this kind of stuff and they gathered up a bunch of that and uh um you know i imagine it went into the museum system you know that kind of stuff i do know that uh at an rotc department where a friend of mine went he found some 1918 manufactured 3040 crag ammo that was uh, i think it was remington made it 
and it was full metal patch bullet it wasn't a hunting bullet it wasn't hunting ammo that somehow wound up there it was some sort of military contract ammo that was that was there and had been sitting there literally for at that time like 1990 1920 been sitting there for 60 70 years so there is a lot of stuff that just kind of floats around out there um remember they just found 50 caliber machine gun number um serial number like 378 or something and they figured it had been in inventory since the um 1920s and had continued it served through world war ii korea vietnam everything else um you know is in inventory during all this time and it was just like um five six years ago that they found it and uh, when they were doing the uh head spacing upgrades so they took it and they sent it to a museum rather than upgrading it and sending it back but you know it just shows you that stuff goes out there it's not as clean cut or as clear as you as you think it would be okay next question if the u.s model 1917 enfield rifle had not been produced which rifle would have supplemented the 1903 Springfield in World War One? I? I think we talked about this a long time ago. I, I think that uh, if, if for some reason that design could not have happened, uh, the choice would have been, do you just continue the, the P-14 in 303? And then we just say, hey, we, have, we now have common ammunition with the British. And it would have it would have been pretty ugly, uh, ammo logistics wise, but it would have been possible. So we could have done that. If the P14 had never been around, let's just say we weren't producing anything, I think we would have wound up with French Berthier rifles that we were make already making here, and uh, Moisin Nagant rifles that we were already making here. Um, uh, we probably would have taken because we did take over. Uh, some of each of those for training and drill purposes um, when the Russians the Russian Revolution precluded the filling of those contracts why we just took those over and we actually issued them to the people who went to uh, Archangel and Vladivostok so you know with the US troops were actually issued those so it wouldn't have been a very uh, much of a stretch to say that um, you know, the troops on the Western Front would have gotten them also. And, you know, they probably could have been produced as fast as the 1917 or close to it. So, yeah, it would have been very, very different. Um, you know, they took a real gamble. And Hatcher talks about it. They basically said, if we just keep the P-14, the 303 caliber P-14 production lines going, We'll have we'll have rifles, you know, it's, it's just uninterrupted flow of rifles. If we stop and redesign it for the 30-06 cartridge, there's going to be a break. And they minimized that break and got it in 30-06 and really did a fantastic job. Really did a fantastic job with that rifle. Um, really saved our bacon. I, you know, I have to say I prefer it over the 1903 in, in many, many ways. So it was a very, very good decision to do that. If we hadn't had it, yeah, we would have been, there would have been some troops who might have 
been in the combat zone, I'm not saying they would have used it, but there would have been troops in the combat zones with 30, 40 crags, and, you know, who knows. Uh, we had these, we had, you know, some, we had some interesting units in World War One. One of them were, one of the ones that's most interesting were called Pioneer Infantry, and most of them were, were black, African-American soldiers with white officers and what they would do is they would build a road we took over so much of the front from the french and a lot of the trenches and fortifications and road networks were in very bad condition so they would have to they were they were engineers slash infantry they'd build a road up to the front occupy the old french trenches and improve those and make them make them usable and you know that's kind of the stuff they would do they really weren't used in the attack but they were expected to defend those trenches when the germans either attacked or did trench raids or the rest so they both improved it and they had to defend it and they didn't really go on the attack very much i think they kind of did some flanking things and and uh you know would would move up but you know they weren't they weren't assault troops but you know they probably would have been stuck with 30 40 crags you know or they would have been stuck with you know three shot berthier rifles you know the packet load manlicker packet loading uh three shot berthier they would have been stuck with those or they would have been stuck with crags or they would have been stuck with um with moisens you know it it's those kind of that that's just what would have happened we could have had we could be one of the big things we would talk about in world war one would have been the ammunition you know disaster of having all these different cartridges and how important uniform calibers for uh would have been a standardized caliber would have been okay here is our last question should the USA have adopted a 38 special revolver for military use in the early 1900s? You know, they that would have been a good idea. That would have been a super good idea. And I think the only reason it didn't was the 38 caliber had such a crappy reputation with the old 38 long cold that I don't think there was a lot of trust in the 38 special. Because actually, you know, it's very cool. You go to the 38 short cold, then there's the 38 long cold, then there's the 38 special, then there's the 357 magnum, then there's the 357 maximum. All of those are essentially the same base kind of cartridge. They're just lengthened and loaded hotter. And especially when you get to 357 magnum and 357 maximum, uh, they're, they're really, loads really increased. But it's really interesting that they, you know, talk about it doesn't speak much for innovation when the new best idea is, well, we're going to lengthen this one a tenth of an inch and just load it a little hotter and put it in a more stout revolver. That, that really doesn't bespeak of a lot of innovation, but that's what they were doing. But 38 caliber had a very bad reputation because of the Philippines. So I don't think that uh, we ever would have seen a 38 special service pistol that, that was across the... And plus the fact, by that time, 
U.S. military basically knew that they were going to go to a um, an auto pistol at some point. They just didn't know. They didn't know exactly when, and they didn't know exactly what it would look like. But they they figured it would probably be a cold, and they figured it would probably just take some developmental time. So, um, and they knew they wanted 45 caliber. As it turns out, in World War II, we had all kinds of 38 special military revolvers. Uh, the um, the Victory model Smith and Wessons. Uh, we had the Colt Commando, which was the uh, official police. And after the war, you know, even into the 1970s and 80s, the Air Force was using uh, um, Model 15 Smith and Wessons. Um, there were, you know, it's there was a lot of lot of use of military revolvers. I think even some Rugers were used, you know, before the adoption of the of the Beretta uh, 92 as the M9. Um, I only recall seeing MPs armed with 1911s, but you know, I it's not like I was looking all that close. So um, definitely, and and of course, you know, a lot of times military law enforcement will mirror civilian law enforcement. So I'm sure that there was quite a bit of use. I, as a matter of fact, I have a holster that is a military revolver holster um, from like the 1960s. So, you know, they were out there and they were using them. So um, very interesting. Should they gone to it, have gone to it earlier? That, that might not have been a bad choice. You know, it, uh, it certainly would have changed the landscape you know, would the 1911 have even come out if they'd said, yeah, we got these 38s or they're more powerful now than they were and they're a lot better. So we'll just stick with these. So all through World War One and, you know, yeah, that would have been it could have been we could be looking at a very different handgun scene today as opposed to then. It could be, yeah, could very well be that, you know, all those if the 1911 hadn't happened or if it was just another design that you know stopped being made in the 1930s you know like like a lot of the earlier designs you know so we'll see that's interesting interesting to think about well that's it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you exactly like it is and again if you have any questions or comments let us know kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.